0: Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lithub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Eve Yohallam, and I'm the author of a number of children's books, including The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off The Strange Adventures of Petra De Winter and Brom Broen. Today, we're mixing it up a little on Book Dreams, and not just because I'm starting the intro. The other reason we're mixing it up is because today's guest is none other than my dear, dear, dear friend and co-host and brilliant writer, Julie
1: Sternberg. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for making time (laughs) in your schedule for Book Dreams. You're
0: so welcome. So our book-related question is, Would you please tell us everything there is to know about your brand new book, your middle grade novel, Summer of Stolen Secrets? Sure. I'd love to. Excellent. Excellent. So let's start with what's important. Summer of Stolen Secrets is set in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where you grew up and where your family owned a department store for many years. Would you please tell everyone about the cemetery near your family's store?
1: <laughs> I love that you're starting with that question. That's <laughs> fabulous. You know I was totally into that. I know you are. Okay. I'm used to cemeteries having headstones that show and grass covering the coffins in the graves. Is that the kind of cemetery that you're used to? Yes. If you sprinkle in maybe some mausoleums,
0: things like that. But essentially.
1: Not this cemetery. In this cemetery, for whatever reason, you see a great deal of each of the coffins. They look to me like they have come up out of the ground. I I don't know why. And many of them have huge gaping holes in the coffins. (gasps) They They... They cry out. I'm not sure you put the gaping holes in the book. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, that's not in the book. But it's true. I have these pictures. So you know, they're sort of like, what would I see if I looked inside? Wait, you're telling me you've never looked inside? Well, I did. I got closer to look inside one to kind of peer in, and I saw an actual bone. lying near the coffin. It wasn't in. And that was it for me. I was like, okay, I've got to go. Yeah. It's a crazy cemetery. And there's a famous story in my family. It has to do with when my grandfather was considering buying this foundational store for us, this main street store that became really the heart of the family. And he took one look at that cemetery and said... I can't sell clothes to dead people. He was supposed to go inside the store and meet with someone about the sale. And he instead had his cousin who was driving, drive them back to New Orleans where they had driven from because of the cemetery. Plus, there were some railroad tracks and a dead end street nearby. Mm -hmm. And he thought it was just all terrible luck. But clearly, he got over yes, that. Yes, he Somebody convinced
0: him the cemetery was going to be a selling point at some point.
1: Well, actually, it's funny you say that because, in fact, my family had um, would often open the store after closing hours for folks who had a funeral coming up. Not necessarily at that cemetery, but they would sell people uh, sell clothes rather because of dead people. That's very compassionate you know, so that they didn't have to shop in the middle of the
0: day when they're in the midst of their grief.
1: Yeah. Well, actually my family has owned a number of businesses and there's something about a department store that's very personal and involves a lot of compassion. I think if you do it, at least the way my family did it, Mm -hmm. it becomes about building community in a way that a lot of businesses aren't. Is it fair to say that this book
0: more than any of your others, is it fair to say that it's the most personal for you? It
1: absolutely is. So this is my ninth book and I often will take a personal moment as inspiration for a story and run with it. So I've had other books that have involved moments for my family, like when our beloved babysitter moved away and I've used that as inspiration. This book, Summer of Stolen Secrets is really about the story elements are about the forces that shaped me as a child. So in that way, it is the most personal to me. So tell us the origin story of this book. Okay. So I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in a Jewish family, and it owned department stores. We had at one time the largest family-owned department store chain in the country. But for my purposes as a kid, there was really only one store that mattered. And that was this store around the corner from the cemetery on Main Street in Baton Rouge. My parents had four kids in four and a half years, no twins. They just My mom just kept having baby, 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 baby. And they put us all to work in the store on Saturday mornings, as soon as we turned five years old. So we would pin on a little name tag and on Saturday mornings, we would go to the store and we would all set to work. So I should say that my siblings would get to work. I would pretend to work for a little while. And then (laughs) as soon as I knew how to read, all I wanted to do was read. And so I would go to a back corner of the books department and I would sit there and grab a book and read. Wait, wait,
0: hang on. Your
1: department store had a book department? We
0: did. That's not typical, is it? When I think about the department stores that I've been to, even back when I was a child, I don't remember them having book departments.
1: I don't know how typical it was. And it's possible that at a certain point, it was so unprofitable that we gave up that <laughs> real estate to another yeah. <laughs> another department, but we did have a, a book department for as long as I can remember. It wasn't very big. It was right across from luggage. And I, I would hide on the floor. And I thought most of my life that I had been quite successful in hiding. And I mentioned it to my father I don't know whether I was confessing or what, because I had taken the money for working. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, of course. Right. So he paid us a whopping 25 cents an hour for our work. And um, I would collect the money at the end. And finally, I said to him, you know, Dad, I, I I wasn't actually working. I was reading in the book department. And he said, do you think we didn't know that? <laughs> <laughs> of course, the employees saw, you know, almost all of the grownups in my family worked in the store. And everyone knew who I was and everyone knew... What I was doing. I love that. Anyway, in this department store, my grandmother, Leah, was the matriarch. She was my father's mother, and she, along with my grandfather and my dad and his siblings, they had all fled Nazi Germany in the mid 30s and come over and bought this store. And they had, you know, really taken all their money and used it on this store. But she was a tough, tough customer. I have always wanted to write a book that has those elements of the department store and and this tough grandmother and family roots in Germany. And those are some of the key elements in Summer of Stolen Secrets.
0: Now, I only know you as a New Yorker except for the occasional rare moment when I overhear you call one of your daughters sugar, which always gives me <laughs> such a thrill, sugar, <laughs> or when you get excited about something and the y'all sneak in. Yeah. But you know, that's just the grown-up you, the you since college graduation. What was it like to return to your hometown in this way? I mean, did you mm-hmm. go home to research? Did you have help from friends and family or interview people? And did you learn anything new about your town that
1: you hadn't known before? Mm, so yes, yes, and yes. I did go back with an eye toward writing a story. The building still exists, but it's a FEMA center now. It became a FEMA center around the time of Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. And there's a big gate up and there's a security guard posted at all times, it seems, Mm. in front and she wouldn't let us in. So that was kind of poignant. And in researching the book, I spoke a lot to my dad. I spoke a lot to my aunt, his sister. And I did learn stories. For example, my family has always insisted that my dad's generation never experienced any anti-Semitism in Mm -hmm. Baton Rouge. That The people of Baton Rouge were very welcoming, as I'm sure they were. I mean, every time anyone in my family talks about those days when they came from Germany, they always say that. But when I was talking to my aunt about the book, she told me for the first time that sororities in her high school, at the time there were sororities in high school, wouldn't accept Jewish girls. Hmm. These stories are from a time that predates really the bulk of what happens in my book and they don't really show up in the book, but it was a great reason to talk further with my family and, and learn more. My conversations with my dad I learned a lot about my grandmother, which was, of course, important for me because one of the main characters in the book is based on her. Mm -hmm. I learned from him in these conversations that my grandmother had a clear favorite among him and his siblings. She clearly favored his whole life, apparently, Mm -hmm. his brother, my Uncle Joe. Hmm. Now, everyone loved Uncle Joe, yeah. but I had never heard my dad say that Leah had a favorite and my aunt confirmed it. So that was hmm. a surprise and interesting
0: to me. Was your grandmother open about it? I, this is another connection you and I have. My father's mother had a clear favorite, but she was very open about it. And it wasn't my father. It was his brother. And she would say, I can't help the way I feel. <laughs> and then later she preferred my sister to me and it was the same. I can't help the way I
1: feel. I wouldn't be surprised if she was open about it. She was open enough that both my dad and my aunt were quite clear that it was true. And she told me at the end of her life, she said to me, Mark, who was my younger brother, Mark has always been my favorite, she told me, <laughs> which was really a fun <laughs> moment. Say, How nice, grandma. <laughs> What I wanted to say, well, we always called my other grandmother Babe, and I wanted to say, yeah, Babe has always been my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) So Zafta,
0: the grandmother in the story, is such a memorable character. She's strong, she's determined, she's commanding, and, and I also think it's fair to say inflexible and not warm. (laughs) Is that fair? Very fair. (laughs) Or or not warm in a stereotypical grandma kind of a way. And you've just said that there's a lot of your grandmother, Leah, in her. Can you tell us some of the stories about your grandmother
1: that inspired the writing of this book? Sure. I think one of the questions that I think about a lot in general is why did we adore Leia? I mean, we all adored Leia Mm -hmm. on the one hand. And on the other hand, she really was so tough with us. So what is that? You know, she would tell us, you know, you've gained weight. That shirt does not look good on you. My cooking is better than your mother's cooking. (laughs) You do not have that kind of intelligence. She told (laughs) you that's (laughs) so good. <laughs> right. I mean, those are just classic. That's a sprinkling of the kinds of things that she had no hesitation in saying. Mm-hmm. She kind of prided herself on her candor. And each of those things was true, you know, when she said them. You know? <laughs> so she's a fascinating character, and I have always wanted to try to figure her out, which was in part why I wrote this book. She had in Germany in nineteen thirty five, she had a seven year old a five-year-old, and a newborn, and she and her husband had decided that they had to get out of Nazi Germany, that that circumstances were so bad they had to get out. And so her husband left her with, you know, her full consent Mm -hmm. and encouragement, left her and these three very small children and came to the United States to create a business for them and a home for them. So she was alone in Nazi Germany for a year.
0: With three tiny children.
1: With three tiny children. And when she got on the boat, finally, finally, he bought that store that he hadn't wanted to buy, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's in part why he bought it. It was a desperate situation. He had written and said that he was homesick and he wanted to come home. And she told him things had gotten so bad he couldn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had relatives who were being pistol whipped by the Nazis. So she had these three small children. She got on the boat, the ship, to sail to America, finally, and an SS officer followed her onto the ship, more than one mm-hmm. officer, and they searched all of her suitcases, dumped everything out, broke open the cookies that she'd brought for the children, for the um, voyage. And then, I only learned this piece of the story when I was a grown-up. took her into the bathroom and had her put her foot up on the Toilet, presumably to check that, you know, check her vagina for gems and any money that she might be taking out. And then she comes back out of the bathroom with them and she's so angry that she tells these SS officers, You made the mess, you clean it up. And they did. The (laughs) SS officers repacked her suitcases. Oh my God. Now, when I heard this story, absent the bathroom part, as a kid, I was like, isn't she so strong? Isn't she so brave? I thought it was so impressive. I thought it was such a model. And now, of course, I think you're leaving Nazi Germany with your three children. Shut up. Right, exactly. Are you, crazy? <laughs>
0: Are you
1: crazy? But there must have been
0: something about her presence. And wasn't she tiny? Yeah, she was five, one and a half. So this teeny tiny woman must have had such a commanding presence that those two officers obeyed her.
1: Yeah. I mean, she must have had a sense that they would, right? She must have read them. And she was a tremendously dignified, stern, you know, even before one can think maybe that these experiences in Nazi Germany toughened her up. And they probably did to a certain extent, but even before that, she was a commanding presence. And you know, when you think about it, this was in the 1930s. She worked every single day in that store Mm -hmm. with my grandfather. She, and then my grandfather died before my parents got married, you know, in the sixties. And so she continued to run the stores with her sons and with the family.
0: Now you've been interested in intergenerational trauma for as long as I've known you. Did
1: that interest come from your family's history? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I was the kind of kid, this is a true story. When I was a kid, (laughs) really little, I took all of my stuffed animals And I put them in large trash bags Mm -hmm. and I put my stuffed animals in them and I knotted the bags at the top so that I really couldn't play with the stuffed animals, but I could, and this was the concern, get the bags out if there was a fire. (laughs) How old were you? I don't know, six, seven. (laughs) This was a real concern. This was the way my mind has always worked. Right. And it's not like there was anything in your
0: personal history up until that time that would have made sense. No need to escape during your own life.
1: No. Now it did infuse the family lore, but is there also something inherited about it? Yeah. I don't
0: know. One of the things I keep thinking about after reading your book is how, how love can feel like love even when it doesn't look like love. This is going back to Safta and your grandmother. You know, Safta never holds back on criticism of her family members, just like your grandmother didn't. Did you feel loved by your grandmother? And if so, how did you know that she loved you?
1: I felt very loved by my grandmother. How did I know? Well, you know, weirdly, in part I knew because she insulted me. Right.
0: Because she's trying in, in her mind, she's telling you this so that you can be better or do better, or you know,
1: right. I can totally get that. Right. And I should say that every one of her children built houses. My dad and my mom built their house right across the street from her. And then within walking distance, both Uncle Joe and my aunt Enza, they all built their houses. We all lived within walking distance of each other. Mm-hmm. It was a very, very close family, and we felt like a unit. Yeah, maybe in part because we were Jewish in Baton Rouge too, um, and we owned these stores. You know, we felt like we had this experience that not many people were having. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of love. There, there really was a lot of love, and she wasn't an exception. She was just kind of difficult about it. Right. Now, as the title
0: suggests, secrets play a big role in this story, keeping them, sharing them, stealing them, and also what the effects are of all of those things. What made you want to explore secrets this way?
1: Oh, I'm fascinated by secrets. (laughs) And I have to say that's not because of my family. It's because of something I did, actually. When I was in eighth grade, I cheated on a French exam. Mm. And I felt so much shame for having done this that I never told anyone. The only people who knew were my parents because I got caught. And so they knew Mm -hmm. the girl that I cheated with knew. And she seemed completely unaffected by this. Her parents knew. And now all of our listeners know. Well, that's the thing is that in the podcast that I did before this podcast, what I wanted to do was talk about the kinds of themes that authors write about in children's books. I wanted to ask children's book authors about those same themes in their own lives. Mm -hmm. So secrets is a big theme. So I knew I was going to be asking authors about secrets. And so I decided that in the first episode, I would expose a secret of my own. Mm -hmm. And this is seemingly a small secret, right? Like who really cares? I was 13. But when I tell you that it weighed on me, I never talked about it. I felt such shame when I thought about it. I hadn't told my husband. I hadn't told my children. I hadn't told anyone. I felt like a terrible person whenever I thought about it. This is in my forties. right? And so I decided I was going to have to share it if I was going to do this podcast. And I got in touch with the girl, her name is Rebecca, and I interviewed her about it. And she confirmed that she hadn't cared, you know, she'd just picked herself up <laughs> she might and not have gone even on. remembered. She had no idea why I was getting in touch with her. None. Whereas every time I thought of Rebecca, this was the only thing I thought of,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: I would have known instantly if she had gotten in touch with me and wanted to talk about something from our past instantly right. that this is what she wanted to talk about. And so I also spoke with a psychologist on this episode, and she said that there's the secret, and then there's the secret within the secret. And so my secret was that I cheated on a French exam when I was 13. But the secret within the secret is that I was the kind of person who could transgress in that way, who Mm. could make that kind of mistake, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And in my family, especially making a huge mistake, carried with it a lot of weight. You know, we needed to succeed. I think we felt an unspoken pressure to succeed for the Jewish people um, to kind of prove to Hitler something about our worth. I don't know. There was a lot going on. Yeah. And so I've always been fascinated. And by the way, when, once I shared that secret in that episode, it was such a weight off. I was it, going to ask it, you
0: that follow-up yeah. question. Was it liberating yeah. to finally share the secret?
1: Unbelievably liberating. So now you can
0: Un- think about it without that sense of shame.
1: Well, look at me talking about it. Yeah. You know, I, like it's, it's easy. I mean, I, I, it's easy to put into context. It's a tremendous difference. Mm-hmm. So I find secrets fascinating and really important. Yeah. Well, I
0: am also very interested in secrets. So if there are any other secrets that you would like to share with me, I like hearing (laughs) them very
1: much. I'll keep that in mind. Thank you.
0: Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Baton Rouge. I've never been there and I know nothing about it except for what I've read in your book. So I thought we could play a game (laughs) where I describe the Baton Rouge of my imagination and then you tell me how right I am.
1: Okay. Let's hear it. So fun. Okay. You ready?
0: Ready. Okay. Do the alligators walk brazenly down the streets Mm. or do they only lurk in the swamps that are just outside the city limits?
1: There are alligators. Um I, I had a oh my friend. Gosh, I thought that there weren't. <laughs> I thought, well, this is I such a th- stereotype. What's the most
0: outrageous no, thing I can
1: possibly say? And now it, you're they, telling me it's true. It's not a frequent occurrence, but my friend, Wendy Lipsy, hit like a 10-foot alligator with her car. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, not on purpose, but like she was driving along and then there was this alligator. In the road. In the road. <laughs>
0: And do they ever show up in people's backyards or swimming pools?
1: I mean, I remember one time Emily was with us. Emily was really little. That's my older daughter. And we went to this place. I think it was in St. Francisville, Louisiana. So it's not Baton Rouge, but it's close. Mm-hmm. It was like a kind of a golf club resort kind of place. And there we couldn't go onto the porch because there was an alligator on the porch. <laughs> oh, it happens. Yeah. Wow. And do people... As it
0: happened in your book, do people actually get in their cars just to drive across the street in the summer so they can stay in the air conditioning?
1: Oh, 100%. It's far (laughs) rarer to walk anywhere.
0: Far rarer. I can't even imagine that heat and humidity.
1: It's so hot. It's so humid a lot of the time. And the mosquitoes are brutal. What do you miss most about living there? I quite like the pace of life there. I did a lot of reading as a kid. And I think that that was in no small part because the pace of life was suited to that. Yeah. Now my parents would laugh because they were working very, very, very hard. <laughs> um, but as we've established, you were not. I was not, <laughs> right. There is just something different about the energy of the whole place. It's less frenetic.
0: Yeah. So how do you feel now that you've finally told this version of your family story that you tried for many many years to write and is there more you want to say in future books?
1: I feel very happy that I've told a version of it but it's really only one. Mm-hmm. I've always felt that there is a lot of the story that it's better suited to a book for an older audience. So we'll see, yeah. but I am glad to have one one version out.
0: Well, I'm really glad that you have this version out. Thank you for writing this beautiful book.
1: Oh, thank you for calling it beautiful.
0: And I think that's it for this wonderful special episode of the book dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Be sure to let us know if there's a book related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at book Dreams Pod and on Instagram at book Dreams Podcast. You can find Julie at Sternberg.com and on Twitter at SternbergJulie. You can find me at EveYohallam.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. And check out the podcast website, www.BookDreamsPodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming! Happy book dreaming! Bye. Listen to your dreams with Julian.